Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. This is a rare treat. The second time this week that we've had a conversation on this very topic. Yes, I did give you a call on Monday night wanting to help work through the topic that we're talking about today. So hopefully for our listeners, it will come off as a fresh conversation and not not us rehashing talking points that we already established. I hope so too. I, I'm feeling pretty good about this one. Let's dive into it. Good. Well, first, we are excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor, as we do every week. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience that guides you through the process from start to finish to take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site, and they're available to help 24 by 7. Plans mm-hmm. start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. So go to WordPress.com slash exponent to get 50% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash exponent. And it's interesting. One of the reasons I like having WordPress as a sponsor is obviously I'm a believer broadly in blogs, not just because I write a blog, but I really like – I linked to the Daily Update this week, this post that I wrote last fall called Books and Blogs, which I wrote that post. It's actually the rare time that I wrote two weekly articles and posted them both in the same day because the other weekly article that day was defining aggregators. And I kind of felt like almost sheepish writing it. I'm like, oh, wait, this is a topic that I've covered not only for a few years, but particularly in the last few posts. And I just kind of want to put it all in one place so I can link to it in the future. <laughs> that was like a future linking creation post. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, sorry, this is my weekly article for the week. So I, I like added another one justifying myself. But, you know, it's interesting because what I said in that books and blogs piece was blogs are very disruptive, I think, in a very true sort of disruption sense where a disruptive technology is sort of inferior to what is there before, but it has some sort of technological advantage that let it scale in a different way than sort of the incumbent does, right? We've talked about this in the context of hotels where if a Best Western is not disruptive to Ritz-Carlton – it's just cheaper. And because if it actually wanted to compete, it would end up being the same price. Whereas Airbnb is disruptive and because disruption is really not just about a new, it's not just about the features, about the business models, but the sort of totality of the offering. Mm-hmm. Right. There needs to be something inherent in it that's scalable such that as performance rises to match the incumbent, then cost is lower, or if cost matches the incumbent, then performance is higher. And sometimes it's often the case that the axes of performance that the disruptor has or the nature of the performance is somewhat different. It's still beneficial, but somewhat different. So the classic example is the PC and the smartphone. And when the smartphone came out, again, I would say the smartphone is disruptive to the personal computer, but when the smartphone came out, it was great to have something with you in your pocket. But if you were sitting near your computer, of course you would use your computer. But the nature of the performance of the phone has improved in a number of ways. For example, the touchscreen, sometimes there are instances where the touchscreen is just a better interface than a keyboard. Now there are times where I find myself sitting at my desk with the computer unlocked right in front of me, but I'll reach for my phone instead. Oh, totally. Yeah. The other favorite example that we talk about is like Netflix, right? Netflix, when it came along, the ability to not have to worry about returns, it was a point of differentiation that it was less convenient in many respects to get a movie because you had to wait for them to mail it to you, right? Where you could drive to Blockbuster and get it right away, but it had other vectors that it succeeded on. And then obviously by being an online sort of thing, its shelf space was unlimited and much more selection, all those sorts of things. And they competed on different vectors. And then obviously we know what happened over time, all those sort of obstacles became overcome and soon Blockbuster just had nothing because Netflix was better in every aspect. Now it wasn't just 
just you had to worry about return fees. You don't have to worry about driving to the store because you could just stream it right away, right? And it's a great example of how something can start being inferior but good at some things, and then it improves and it becomes good enough at the things that the incumbent's good at, and then the things that it's inherently different on, those become super high-end sort of differentiators. And I think this applies to blogs and books. I can't remember if we talked about this post at the time, but – I guess I was thinking about honestly because WordPress is our sponsor, and I was just thinking about what makes blogs so great. And blogs, they were thought about. You mentioned PCs and smartphones. You know, Microsoft thought about smartphones as being an adjunct to the PCs, and one of the problems they had with the space was they couldn't get that sort of mental model out of their head. And you know, that's always been. If you think about books and blogs, oh, an author should start a blog. Why? To promote their book, right? Because that's how they will make money. They make money by selling the book. And you know, blogs certainly have benefits in that you can update them all. The time and you can write a new post every day and you can change things and edit things and all that's going forward. But that was all viewed as that's just a lowly blog and mm-hmm. all the money is actually made in selling the book or something along those lines, right? Now, today, the money making aspect, thanks to the tools like Stripe and things like that, the money making aspects are much more powerful even than books, right? I mean, writing a blog, if you have a large subscriber base, your average revenue per subscriber is much higher than you would get if you're selling them a book because you know, you're getting, what, a couple bucks from every purchaser as an author? Yeah, and it's a subscription business model as opposed to a one-off purchase. And there's a reason that so many Silicon Valley companies are starting subscription businesses. There are all kinds of reasons. It aligns incentives, but there's a reliable revenue stream going into the future that allows you to fund future projects. There are a whole bunch of reasons why it's a better model. Oh, for sure. So it's actually better on the vector that books used to be better on. And you still have all those other advantages, right? Like you can update it every day. You can change things. You can evolve things. You can search. You can do all those sorts of things. And I think it's a total disruption. I get asked all the time, are you going to write a book, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I think, oh, and it's usually about aggregation theory because that's kind of like the thing that I've spent so much time on. And every time I have episodes like this past month where we've been talking a lot about aggregation theory and I think really evolving it in important, meaningful ways, it's like, man, it would be a royal pain in the rear end if I had a book because I'd, <laughs> I would have this manuscript floating around that I actually don't completely, or I've evolved my thinking on it. Like, why would I even want to do that? It sounds like an actively bad idea in many respects. Yeah, it's interesting. And the nature of, I feel like you're a pioneer in this sense. I don't think most business theorists are primarily focused on the web yet. But it's going to be interesting to see as this trend continues, and I believe it will, despite all the cultural and the prestige reasons why people want things in print, in journals, and so on. As more people move onto the web, it's going to be interesting to see whether theories start to live and evolve a lot more than they previously have, because it was almost like the delivery mechanism affected the nature of the theory. It was done, it was dusted, you can't touch it. And maybe it would be proven to be wrong or there would be some big correction. But this notion of it evolving over time, I think is it could be something that we see more and more of. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think probably the biggest warning sign you can have that a sector or something is in trouble is when the primary reason to do it is like for prestige. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, there is prestige that comes running a book. And it's a tempting proposition. But if you actually think through everything like the business model the impact on the work itself, the reach, Mm. all those things are actually more limited in the case of books than it is relative to a blog. Like a blog is actually superior on almost every vector that actually matters to me. 
Anyhow, I was thinking about that, one, because our ad was for WordPress, which I strongly endorse, and I think it's a great place to start your blog, because one, it's a great service, and two, your WordPress, if you ever want to expand beyond that and use all these cool tools, like they all work with WordPress, right? Even if you end mm. up having set up your own personal site that's not on WordPress.com, you can easily port all your information. It's very simple, so I, I strongly endorse WordPress.com. The other reason is because, uh, stop kissing up to my sponsor and former employer, uh, the other reason is this week, writing about the Moat Map and it really going back a couple weeks when we talked about Zillow and you know thinking about aggregation theory and the importance of integration, integrating back into the transaction and mm-hmm. how like there's a difference between just acquiring customers and actually changing value change and building like you can build nice businesses, but there's a difference between building like a nice business that plugs into an existing value chain versus a sort of transformative business that changes the way a value chain actually works. And we talked about that. And then last week we talked about the text two philosophies and this idea that some technology helps people do what they want to do better and more efficiently. And some technology is focused on really replacing the need for people to do it at all. And, you know, I think the problem with last week, I think there's definitely something there, but there was an undercurrent that we talked about in the podcast last week about this difference between platforms and aggregators. And it wasn't quite fully fleshed out in my head, but it was certainly very sort of thought-provoking what I was trying to think about. And this week was really kind of trying to blow that out a little bit. And what is the difference and how does it matter and how can you sort of define that difference? And if you define that difference, can you define it in such a way that it actually provides ways to think strategically about businesses and what you should do based on where you sort of fall on the aggregator versus platform scale, if that makes sense? Totally makes sense. This question of the difference between platform and aggregator, I think it's a really interesting one to dive into. And I like the approach that you've taken. So let's jump into it. Yeah. So the one thing that when you think about, is there a difference here? I think it really comes down to sort of the third party supplier situation, right? Like how important are third parties to the platform and its user experience? Because the commonality between aggregation platforms is that their competitive advantage rests on having a lot of users, right? Like that was the key back in the case of the PC. That was the key in case of smartphones. Like the reason why people were always fretting that Android was going to kill iOS because Android had way more users, right? And the response that we've discussed in this podcast, well, yeah, Apple had sufficient users, though they were at scale such that there was going to be two ecosystems and that was going to be sufficient for both to thrive and do well. But the question that mattered constantly was really the number of users and aggregators. You know, the whole point of aggregation theory is this idea that the world is shifting from where what matters is controlling supply to a world where what matters is controlling demand by implication. That's about accruing more users that gives you power over your sort of your supply. and You get this sort of virtuous cycle. So at first glance, it's very, very similar, right? Cause it's all about users. But I think the real distinction and the first distinction that I kind of explored in this article was what's the sort of relevance relative importance and power of third-party suppliers. And there you can see a very stark difference. So the two companies I think are the most useful, just because to talk about the extremes, I think makes it easier to think about this, is Facebook versus Microsoft. And when I say Microsoft, I mean not like Azure sort of stuff, but traditional Windows, like the dominant sort of platform for two decades, you know, fading for sure. But I think it's useful to talk about because it's such a stark difference from a company like Facebook, right? In the case of Facebook, the third-party suppliers 
are like information companies, right? Like news organizations or whatever it is that games that, or even advertisers that put their things onto Facebook and they are utterly and completely commoditized, right? They are not important to Facebook at all. If an organization chose to take their content off of Facebook, it would not affect Facebook in the slightest, right? There's no organization has any sort of power over the decision of users whether or not to use Facebook. And that's very different from a company like Microsoft and Windows, where the entire point of using Windows was to get access and be able to use third-party applications. So they were very important. And if they went away and they went somewhere else, then that was a reason to consider going away and switching to somewhere else. And there's a very clear difference there. Yeah, this clicked for me in the context of thinking about if Adobe pulled Photoshop off one of the platforms like Microsoft or Apple, where enough of the value of those respective platforms was provided in certain instances to certain users by third parties that having their support became crucial to the platform's success. Like you said, if the New York Times suddenly decided not to post articles to Facebook or free ones to Facebook, I think maybe there would be some tiny difference of people that notice. But by and large, most people who go to Facebook wouldn't stop going to Facebook. They would continue because the value that Facebook provides, yes, the content is nice. But like we talked about last week, most of the value is in the users and the network and seeing interesting tidbits on friends and family from all around the world. Like that's what keeps you coming back. Right. Just to be clear, I mean, Facebook, the third party content is important, right? If there's nothing but friends and family, so Facebook's learned, you're going to be bored and you're going to go away. So having extra content that keeps you engaged, BuzzFeed quizzes or New York Times articles or whatever it might be, that's important to Facebook, but it's important in a completely commoditized sort of way. They just need content. They don't really care where it comes from. And users don't really care where it comes from. So it needs content, but it's totally commoditized. Whereas Microsoft, there are specific applications. And yes, Adobe Photoshop, it's the easiest example. But again, we're using easy examples today highlight the difference, but you could go into like line of business applications. Like why is Microsoft so dominant? Because there's probably hundreds of millions of applications that are written on Microsoft using the Windows API that companies need to run their business and they're not going to go anywhere because of that application, not because they have an affinity for Windows. And that's fine. Like they don't need to have an affinity for Windows as long as the application they need only runs on Windows. And I think a way of thinking about this is this is a quote from uh, Shamath Palpataya from when he was at Facebook and he was in charge of the quote unquote Facebook platform. And this is an interview they have with Semel Shah and he asked about the Uber platform. And Shamath's response was, neither of them are platforms. They're both kind of like these comical endeavors that you do as an nth priority. I was in charge of Facebook platform. We trumpeted it out like it was some hot shit big deal. And I remember when we raised money from Bill Gates, three or four months after, like our funding history was 5 million, 83 million, 500 million, and then 15 billion. When that 15 billion happened around literally a few months after Facebook platform and Bill Gates said something in the lines of, that's a crock of shit. This isn't a platform. A platform is when the economic value of everybody that uses it exceeds the value of the company that creates it. Then it's a platform. And that's such a great way of thinking about the way Microsoft absolutely thought about Windows. And I've talked about on the podcast previously that Microsoft would trumpet in like their 10K that, oh, this year we captured 27% of all the value in the Windows ecosystem or something like those lines. And they would brag about how relatively low it was because what they were trying to convey was the economic power of this is so massive. And that economic power, the power, the lock-in for Microsoft 
was not the 27%. It was the 73% because that was what actually made Windows valuable and allowed them to capture that much. And I think this Gates definition where when the value on top of the platform is more than the platform itself is a very interesting and useful way to think about this distinction because certainly that's the case with Facebook, right? Facebook is the exact opposite. They are capturing all of the value from the newsfeed, right? And they're handing out pennies to publishers or whatever it might be. And yeah, well, you can run some instant articles with our crappy little Facebook ad network that we don't give any attention to. Go ahead, be our guest. And why? Because it's not a platform. So this is why when we were talking about it earlier this week, we knew that the differentiated versus commoditized on the supplier side was like one of the critical differences between Microsoft and Facebook. And what we were looking for was how come these guys can treat their suppliers so differently? How come Microsoft is reliant and has built this ecosystem where so much of the value is given away, where Facebook has not and seems to get away with it? And we were going back and forth. And this is where we came up with this notion of having an axis that's a network effect. And the reason this is powerful is it captures the facts. So we were thinking about ways of explaining how they could do it. And the network effect seemed to be the best way. And the external network effect, the software providers, the software creators in the instance of Microsoft, so much of the value, yes, Windows had to exist for the software to be written on top, but so much of the value of what you do on Windows relied on these external network effects that were provided by your suppliers versus Facebook, where you could just pick and choose between your suppliers. There was something inside of Facebook that meant you kept coming back to Facebook. And that is the relationships that you have with the people in your life and the content that they were posting into Facebook. And this was the distinction. They had managed to internalize the network effects where Microsoft had left them all. They were all externalized with the software vendors. Yeah, and this was by far the hardest part to tease out, and I'm not sure we've got it totally right so far, but there's this aspect of all these companies benefit from network effects. Like in the digital sort of economy, network effects are what provide lock-in, and you go back to Microsoft, the reason they were dominant was not because it was a great experience, is because they had the network effect. But in this case, the network effect was a network effect between having developers on the platform, having users on the platform. And you know, traditionally, a network effect is the idea that if you are on a platform, it makes the platform more valuable to me because every additional user makes it more valuable to everyone. And in the case of a two-sided network effect or a multi-sided network effect like Microsoft, you being on Microsoft doesn't really directly impact me. What it does is you being on Microsoft means there's more people on Microsoft, on Windows, I should say, that makes it more attractive to developers to go onto the platform. And once those developers are on the platform, now the platform is more valuable to me because I have more choice when it comes to sort of vendors and developers from that perspective. So there is a network effect as far as more users benefiting other users, but it's sort of brought into place by the other side, by the developer side. And that exists on top of Microsoft. It's a two-sided network that sits on top of Microsoft. And Microsoft benefits and is the key linchpin to that network. But the network is like, if you sort of picture it in your head on a graph, it's like floating above Microsoft with ties going down, those ties being the API. So they only work on Microsoft. The network effects between you and I and developers, right? Does it, does it, am I making sense? It makes total sense. 
Yeah, I would agree. Well, you know what I'm talking about. So I guess the people that would tell us making sense aren't going to answer us. But you contrast then. Again, this is why I want to start out this podcast by talking about the two extremes. You contrast this to Facebook, right? Facebook is like the purest expression of a network and a network effect there is in all of technology. Because quite literally, you being on the platform directly improves the value of Facebook to me because now I can connect with you. And we've talked about this, how the number one feature of a chat app, of a messenger app, of any sort of social network is whether or not your friends or family are there because they are such a pure expression of network effects. And the implication of that is the network effect between you and I is intimately tied into Facebook, the service itself, which means the entire manifestation of that network, it's not floating above Facebook. It's integral to Facebook itself. And so the the expression that we came up with was like the degree to which Facebook has internalized the network effects that drive the locking of its business is far more extreme than a company like Microsoft, where they absolutely have network effects that drive their business, but those network effects are externalized to a much greater degree than they are in the case of Facebook. Right. Facebook looks much more like a telephone network in that sense. There's this direct one-to-one relationship. Microsoft, that nature of the indirect, it's like the consumers attract the suppliers and the suppliers then attract the consumers. That's almost a new type of network effect that we hadn't seen until the operating system platform came along. Yeah, I mean, well, there's always been two-sided network effects. I mean, like a shopping mall is like a two-sided network, you know what I mean? And like, But I think the scalability of something like an operating system is what made it unique. And that's the case with all this sort of stuff, the fact that it can extend so broadly. And again, that doesn't mean the locking is any less real. Like if anything, Microsoft's locking was arguably stronger than Facebook's locking is today just because the coordination necessary to move off of Windows is so much more than the coordination necessary to move off of Facebook. Like Facebook can grow viral and it could also decline virally. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you can picture how that might work. Whereas to build a multi-sided ecosystem is far more difficult, which means once built, it's far stickier than it, than it would be otherwise. Right. Because I think it's easy to look at this and say, oh, one side is better than the other. And I'm not saying that by any means. If you're anywhere within this moat, it's a valid way to build a business. The way I think it's really interesting, and this is where it's interesting to bring in other companies, is the way that the incentives to think about your supply base if you're one of these platforms. Like, everyone complains that Facebook treats publishers like crap, and frankly, strategically speaking, it's the exact right thing to do. Like, why should they share with publishers? There's no reason to do it because there's always going to be more. Their level of commoditization is basically total, and, you know, honestly, the extent they do it is probably more for PR purposes than anything else. Whereas if you're a Microsoft, you're heavily incentivized to build up your suppliers, to make them very attractive, to allow them to make a lot of money so they can build far more complex sort of things that, by the way, only work on your platform, that require your platform to work. And it's a rising tide lifts all boats sort of thing. And so the way that Microsoft is incentivized to think about their third parties is very different than the way Facebook is. And hence you have Steve Ballmer up on stage screaming, developers, developers, developers. Where it gets interesting is when you then start comparing that to Apple and the lessons Apple has learned around this. And this is one of the insights that I think I had while looking at the visual representation of your moat map. 
particularly if you're in the top right-hand corner, which is Microsoft and Apple, if you find that a supplier moves above you in terms of they are more differentiated than you have managed to create a network effect, then you run the risk of effectively the developer, the supplier, becoming a Pied Piper and running off with your users. And this is one of the things that happened to Apple. They learned the lesson like Steve Jobs, I'm never going to put my company in a position where a developer is so powerful to take users off my platform because that's what started to happen. Like they had to go hat in hand to Adobe to keep building Photoshop. Same thing with Microsoft and Office. When Bill Gates came up on stage at Macworld that year, famously he promised Office and that was part of the big Mac turnaround. And the problem they had was that their suppliers had differentiated beyond the level of network effect that Apple had managed to establish. I think that is so brilliantly articulated, like the ratio of supplier differentiation relative to the platform's network effects. And if you're a platform, you don't want that to go in the wrong direction. And you're right. That's exactly what happened to Apple the first time is by the mid 90s, there really was no network effect for the Mac, right? It was a product that you used it because you liked. And it wasn't like there was this massive application base that only worked on Macs. Everything that only worked on Macs was, you know, ported to Windows. That's where the customers were. And it's such a great way of thinking about why it was that Adobe could sort of say, basically explicitly tell everyone, go use Windows. And when OS X came along, dragged their feet in supporting it and really dragged their feet for many years in a way that, you know, earned Steve Jobs' enmity famously, but justifiably so. You know, they did have the power and they had the power because the Mac's user base wasn't big enough to really push back on it. And that idea of there being that ratio, I think it's, it's such a great way to put it. And this is where I think a point that you've made continuously is that Apple have hamstrung the App Store, particularly with relationship to the iPad, but even with the iPhone. And I think the mistake Apple's making is that they're in the same position with the iPhone that they were with the Mac in that it wasn't necessarily differentiated enough and that developers could end up threatening the entire platform by moving off. And what they haven't realized is actually the position they're in right now is much more akin to Microsoft with Windows in terms of the value of the network effects. And if you're in such a situation, you want to do everything. You want to be the one up there screaming, developers, 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 because in the same way that locked in Microsoft's network effect, Apple would be in an even more strong, secure position if the quality of the apps and the business models that Apple enabled for the app developers was strong in the iOS ecosystem. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is, it's a hard thing to talk about because the App Store is obviously so fabulously profitable for Apple and it's driving this whole services revenue narrative and all that sort of thing. But conveniently enough, I wrote about this back in 2013 when I think they had just crossed $10 billion or something or paid out. And, and they're like, oh, this is a big lock in for Apple, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote at the time, it's actually not a lock in because the vast majority of that revenue is coming from games. And the thing with games is games take over the entire screen, they have the entire UI, the entire internet face they are far more trivial to port to Android than any sort of application, particularly because they run on things like Unity, which from a game developer perspective, the difficulty of dealing with sort of like the fragmentation of Android, for example, is largely abstracted away. Unity takes care of that. Like the game developer doesn't have to worry about it at all. And so Apple, you know, makes all this money, but they're making all this money on top of something that is not differentiated by their platform. And again, 
to be clear, iOS is fabulously successful. The iPhone is fabulously successful. So this is more a they could have done even better. Not that they're doing bad or doom sort of thing, but I've always felt and I haven't written about it as much lately. I wrote about it a ton in the earlier just checkery in part because I think it's kind of Apple has made some improvements, but also I think the opportunity is kind of passed in a sense. You know, I think there was an opportunity for productivity applications, the sort of applications where you're interacting with them a lot and they're heavily tied into the operating system. And they're the sort of applications that I believe would have, one, been far easier to develop on iOS, in part because of the fragmentation problem. Because they're going to encounter the challenges of fragmentation on Android in a far more deeper and fundamental way than they would, than games would, for example. And secondly, the Mac has such a rich sort of roster of developers in this space. I mean, one thing that people don't realize, I didn't realize until I went to work at Microsoft and I'd use Windows, was actually the thing that I missed the most from the Mac was third-party applications. Like, what? I thought that was Windows' big advantage. Well, Windows' big advantage was all those sort of line of business applications and all the custom-built stuff that companies ran their businesses on, and that was a huge lock-in for Windows. When it came to sort of like bespoke, like hand-built, you know, so like to-do lists or whatever, or Twitter clients, like whatever sort of stupid thing it sounds like, the Mac had such a richer ecosystem than Windows ever did. And I strongly believe, and I still believe, that that could have been built on iOS. The problem is there was no business model to do so. First and foremost, what I've always banged on about is upgrade pricing. Because the hardest thing in any sort of business is acquiring customers. The best way to make ongoing revenue is to make money from customers you already have, right? We just made that point in books and blogs. The beauty about a subscription model is it's so much easier to get my current readers to keep paying me than it is to try to sell a new book every few years and have to reacquire customers all over again. And that's the model that that has built up this entire ecosystem on the Mac, for example. And that that didn't exist, I think, was such a missed opportunity to build these very rich productive applications that become embedded in your day-to-day life and you can't do without in a way that provides even greater value and even greater lock-in for iOS relative to Android. And what's interesting about that is two things. One, you kind of hinted at it. I think a reason, and I wrote this back in 2013, and we'll put a link in the show notes. I think a reason Apple didn't do it is because they remembered being held over a barrel by Adobe and Microsoft back in the 90s. And if they never provided the business model to allow an application to become large and valuable and dominant in a way that people would actually switch platforms to use it, then they would never be held over a barrel again. But the problem in the 90s wasn't that they enabled a rich application to make a lot of money on their platform. The problem was they had no users. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they learned, they felt the pain of that lesson, but they didn't learn the right part of the lesson. But then the other thing, the part two is, you know, if you think about this idea of you should think about the internalization, externalization of your network effects. And so the mistake that was made was Apple, you know, being a little too close to the Facebook side of things and treating developers as commodities. And when they should have been closer to the Microsoft sort of things, and to your point, developers develop developers, but not just from an API perspective, not just bringing about all the money in the app store, but actually breaking it down. Oh, wait, this much is from games. Games, it's great. We're getting a great services revenue stream from that. It's not a platform differentiator. How are we doing in these specific areas with people building apps that, one, are much easier to build on iOS, and also given our user base, going to be more attractive to our users on iOS, and can really up the sort of the network effect of iOS because our network effect, given that we're a platform, is more externalized, which means we need to funnel more resources and enable and empower our developers to a far greater degree. And you go back to that Bill Gates quote, according to Bill Gates, iOS is not a platform because they are 
by no means when it comes to 50%, that 50% line, Apple's taking way more than 50% of the value of the iOS ecosystem. Mm. You know what the irony is, though? And I think another thing that I just realized as we were talking about this was, in a funny kind of way, it's happened to them again. And I wonder whether in part it happened because they were so afraid of it happening, which is in their fastest growing market, they have a supplier that has differentiated beyond what the value of their network effect is. And I'm thinking about WeChat. Like WeChat in China has effectively abstracted away the operating system. And so the only differentiation Apple now has in that market increasingly is their hardware and how it looks and the prestige. And that's never been the way that Apple's best fought, particularly not with the phone. It's the tight integration between the operating system and the hardware and so on. And it's kind of ironic that this thing that they were so terrified of happening and perhaps in a certain sense hamstrung the App Store as a result has ended up happening to them again in the fastest growing market in the world. Yeah, it's a great point. And you know, I've said this multiple times, I'm going to say it again because it always comes up. I never said Apple was doomed when I wrote about WeChat back then. And not only that, I actually predicted Apple would have a bumper year because a new model would be very attractive and they would sell a ton of them, which is exactly what happened. The point is, depending on new models to drive sales is a much sort of shakier place to be than relying on network effects to drive sales, right? And you think about in the US, the iPhone actually has a big network effect, which is iMessage. And iMessage is much more of a Facebook sort of network where it's completely internalized to Apple and Apple benefits strongly from that. But the problem with WeChat is it's a network effect that is external to Apple that Apple has no part in. Like Apple doesn't have a role to play in it. I mean, they do to the extent that Apple takes 30% on a whole bunch of, you know, WeChat by and large makes money off of games and Apple is taking 30% of that. So Apple's profiting greatly, but it's a pure sort of tax profit, right? It's not a enabling sort of profit. It's a, we just happen to have a piece of this. And again, that's very profitable, but it's a more dangerous place to be because all the parts of the ecosystem are sort of incentivized to get Apple out of it. You know what I mean? There's no sort of like win, win, win attitude. That would be a better place to be. Yeah. If WeChat's making more money selling people any other device other than an iOS device, they are going to figure out 30% is a big cut of revenue. They're going to figure out a way to make that happen. And it's a case where the network effects aren't working for them. It's working against them now because the suppliers become differentiated on too differentiated on top. Yeah, it's interesting. But I think the other one that's interesting is Google because, you know, we had Apple and Microsoft on one side and you have Google sort of on the other side. And the thing with Google is Google's sort of, you know, network effect, as it were. And this is where the network effect label, I think, if anything... I like the idea of the network effect axes, and I think this idea of sort of externalizing and internalizing it is really useful. The reason why it's a little tricky is it entails sort of taking a very broad definition of network effect. And like in the case of Google, for example, like you using Google doesn't directly impact me. It's not like there's a developer sitting on the other side. I mean, in the case of Android, there's obviously, but like Google search. But, you know, the benefit is the sort of data that, that accrues, right? And the more people that use Google and the more feedback that goes into search and seeing where people click and seeing all this sort of of signals that Google uses to and the, the sort of iterative machine they built, right? And Google started with this brilliant insight about PageRank, but really the history of Google search from that point on is how do we iterate and use the data that are generating to make the service better and better in, in a sort of a self-improving sort of thing. To that extent, it is a sort of network effect because the more people that are searching on Google, the more data and feedback Google search has and the better Google search will become, which benefits me, right? So if you squint, it's still a network effect. And moreover, it is 
completely internal to Google. Google's not sharing that data with anyone else. That data is not depend on sort of third parties. It's completely internal to Google, which I think builds on and you think about the suppliers, it's also sort of correlated. There are suppliers, which is web pages everywhere, are totally commoditized. Like there's no some suppliers that are critical to Google search and some aren't, as publishers have found out the hard way. Where they're like, oh, Google should pay us for being in Google News. And Google's like, well, you can just not be in Google News. How's that? And then, and then uh, you know, a week later, like, please let us back into Google News. I think those two things are related. The other thing that's really important about this sort of internalization of network effects is it really gets to the business model side, like advertising, for example, and why, you know, we've said again and again, and, you know, there's this news story from about Facebook exploring the possibility of subscriptions for Facebook. You know what that is? That's a glorified PR press release because Facebook will never do that. And the reason they wouldn't do that is because if you think about user experience in its totality, Right? People think, well, oh, ads are bad for the user experience. Well, they can be bad in that when you're scrolling through your feed, maybe you don't want to see an ad. But when you remember the single most important factor in a social network is how many people are on it, you realize that ads are absolutely accretive to the user experience. Why? Because ads make it possible for the service to be free, and having to pay is the single, by far, most important barrier to people not being on the service. And so it follows that when it comes to Facebook, and the same thing with Google, if you want more and more and more people using your search, and if the more people that use your search, the better your search is, that means that Google monetizing via ads actually makes the user experience better than it would be otherwise. And is there a detriment in far as maybe people don't want to see ads? Sure, but that detriment is far outweighed by the benefit that comes from having larger user bases, which accrues to everyone. And this is why advertising is such, one, a natural business model for Google and Facebook. Two, why they're going to continue to dominate the category. Because if your company where ads are obtrusive, like say a publisher, for example, and they're just kind of in the way, number one, they're obtrusive. And number two, they're not doing anything to make your product better other than pay the publisher money. How can you compete against entities where not only are they better ads, but they're also accretive to the sort of user experience? It's just an unfair competition. Mm, I very much agree with your general premise, but let me push back on one specific thing. It really does depend on the way that it is introduced, because I don't think Facebook is going to introduce it in such a sense that you can only sign up if you put your credit card details in. I think the way they're going to introduce it is for people who really care about being tracked and everything that's come to light with advertising business models, they might then be offered an option to pay and to make all that go away. And I actually think it might fit with the point that you make about the user experience and having more people on board because I think Facebook fears that they're actually going to bleed people because people don't want to be tracked in all these different domains. And rather than thinking about this as signing up and paying to join the service, I think this would be paying to make all the tracking features disappear. Otherwise, people might delete their Facebook accounts as a result of. Yeah, you're right. That's a fair distinction. I think that that's a point that's well made. I mean, I guess my response would be that would also be dumb because the people that are most likely to pay are the ones that advertisers most mm. want to read. Sure. But I think that actually sort of makes the point because if the first and most important priority in the aspect of ads that are accrued user experience is ensuring that more people are on the service, it follows that more people be on the service is more important than having the most monetizable user base, right? That's still a second order concern. And so to your point, if it's to keep people on the service that would otherwise leave, then I mean, that's better than 
monetizing people that aren't there because you're yeah. not monetizing them anyway. So it's a good point. It's, it's well made. I do think the other question, though, is when you get to sort of the companies in the middle, when you think about like Amazon and Netflix, and I think these were the ones that were probably the hardest ones to like, I feel good about where they are, but it's kind of hard to explain about why I feel good about where they are. And what's interesting about them is they both have sort of differential. Let's take Netflix. It's probably easier to talk about than Amazon. Like Netflix clearly needs and has differentiated content, right? So their suppliers are differentiated. Like they need shows that people are interested in. But at the same time, unlike sort of a traditional platform, like say a Microsoft Windows, where you have a direct relationship with Adobe and you pay Adobe and Microsoft benefits just by being the platform you also had to buy Microsoft along the way. What Netflix has done is they've sort of intermediated that relationship, right? Where I don't pay the producers of a show on Netflix, I pay Netflix and then Netflix pays the producers of that show. And by being that sort of intermediary, what they've done is they've not just intermediated that direct relationship between me and the show producer. They've intermediated the network effect between show producers generally and me being on the platform. And what I mean is the more users are on the platform, the more attractive that platform would be to say producers, right? Think about a YouTube, for example, right? Why do people put the shows on YouTube? Because there's lots of people on YouTube looking at shows and there's a sort of network effect there. And Netflix is the same sort of thing. The more people on there, the more shows will be on there. The more shows that are on there will attract more people. But the way this actually manifests is through money. Where Because Netflix owns the transaction, the more people that are on Netflix, the more money Netflix has, the more money they have, the more they can pay shows, and they can basically outbid everyone, mm. and then they get more shows, and that attracts more users, right? It's money is this sort of mediating force of what is a network effect. It doesn't seem like a network effect at first glance because you think about network effects as being sort of voluntary going onto a network because other people are there. But if you think about the mechanics of how it works, it's the exact sort of thing as your sort of two-sided network effect with Microsoft, where more users bring on more developers, bring on more users, bring on more developers. It's the same thing. They just completely intermediated it by facilitating that through money. Yeah. I, I mean, there are also some interesting dynamics at play with the nature of the content and the way that people use Netflix versus Microsoft. If they're is an application that you need and it is not on Windows, you will not go on Windows. And that was the problem that Apple faced. But if there's a show you really want to watch and it's not on Netflix, you could still be on Netflix for all the other shows. Now, if there are no shows that you want to watch on Netflix, that's a real problem. So they need somewhat differentiated content, but it's not to the extent that it's the case with Microsoft, nor is it the case where they can be like a Facebook and say, screw it all. If you want to pull out or Google, if you want to pull off Google News, that's no big deal. It's this balance. So I like the fact that it's in the middle. The other thing about the network effects is just as they get more insight on what users want, they can see what type of content will be popular. And they're doing it at the level of individual users. They're able to sum it up. And so they can see gaps in the market that people that rely on intuition, like studios don't get that kind of feedback. They don't know. They get this final kind of the box office takings. And there are all these different factors at play. Netflix Netflix can see because they're watching what individual users are doing in terms of how they're engaging with shows, they get a much more detailed picture of what type of content that should be provided. And as they've got into the business of creating their own content, it means they're being more effective than others. And so in terms of the network effect, that also adds to it. 
Right. And that's a data sort of network effect, similar to kind of like Google, right? That That's definitely more towards the left. So, yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting about this is I mentioned earlier, you can think about how it would impact how the platforms think strategically, right? We use Apple as an example, how arguably they've done it wrong, but it could also impact how the suppliers think as well and how should think about their platforms. Like if you're dependent on Facebook, for example, you should not ever depend on Facebook for anything. You should like, yeah, you can take what you can get, but you have to develop a business plan that is fundamentally presumes Facebook treating you like a total commodity, right? Whereas if you were a Microsoft developer, you could count on Microsoft to treat you well, to enable you to make money because that was in their interest. And again, like Apple had all kinds of developers that were ready to be treated well by Apple and Apple just kind of dropped the ball on it, I would argue, right? But again, it's interesting when you get to the middle. If you're thinking about Amazon, if you're worried about Amazon's power and influence, Amazon's power and influence is increasing to the degree that your differentiation is decreasing, right? If you're a commodity provider, if you're a big CPG company that is used to serving the lowest common denominator, Amazon is a very big problem for you because your level of differentiation is low, which suggests that Amazon's ability to collect the customers that you need is much more internal to Amazon. So right, so here, think about where you are on, on the supplier axes. If you're on the commoditization side, it suggests that the degree to which Amazon delivers you customers is much more inherent to Amazon's internal capabilities than they are to you, right? Which means Amazon's going to be able to push you around. Whereas if you're a very highly differentiated supplier, then Amazon actually wants you more because they want to have everything. They want to have the interesting sort of stuff. And they're going to go more out of their way to cut a good deal with you, to do favors for you, to buy you, you know, to give you the margin that you need. And you can see directly how Amazon's basically sliding from side to side on what they bring to the relationship based on the level of differentiation of the supplier they're trying to get under their platform. And that makes total sense. Like there are products that I as a consumer, if I am buying the product, I don't care where I get it from. I want that product or that brand. And if it's not on Amazon, then I'll go somewhere else. And that's bad for Amazon because they're trying to build up habits in users to just type whatever it is you want and then get it free delivery through Prime. But like you said, there are certain categories of goods where I don't really care. And if it's I don't really care, then Amazon's happy to facilitate this perfect market where it's supply and demand and price competition and quality competition. And they've done a fantastic job. And basically, based on their algorithm that takes account of all those different factors, whatever they put at the top, unless maybe it's sponsored and you're paying to move further up, whatever they put up the top is is what I'm going to buy. And if you're in that instance and you piss off Amazon, they'll just tweak their algorithm and you're done. Or they come along and introduce their own product line as they have in a few instances and you're also done. And I think this bit is why I'm excited about this. Like, it still feels in a very sort of unfinished state, this sort of boat map, and this sort of like gauging the correlation between the sort of internalization, externalization of, of what makes a platform powerful and the supplier differentiation and whatnot. But what's interesting is I think there could be an aspect to this that feels a little more prescriptive than something like aggregation theory, right? Where aggregation theory is like, I felt is very descriptive of what is happening on the internet and the way that demand is driving this. But the, the sort of extent of prescription was build a differentiated user experience and you know then kind of commoditize your suppliers and it was quite general <laughs> to say the least whereas i think this what's interesting and exciting is the idea of looking at a business like this is why the app store is one of my favorite pieces of this is like I knew Apple was handling the App Store wrong, and this really gives a very sort of concrete explanation for what I mean by handling the business wrong. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I totally agree. It gives a prescription both for companies that are trying to build the businesses, but also for suppliers on how they should think about it. The thing that I think came up in the conversation, and I perhaps conflated it a little bit with network effect internalized and externalized, is also the strength of the network effect, because that's the other thing that really has an impact here. For example, the Mac versus iOS and how Apple behaved differently in both of those instances. The Mac strength of the network effect was quite weak and therefore it made them very prone to differentiated suppliers. Whereas the Microsoft network effect, it wasn't so much that, I mean, in the way you've drawn it, Microsoft's a bit more to the right than Apple. That allowed me to conflate it with strength, but it's not strength, it's external versus internal. It's the strengths of Microsoft's network effect that means it is not at all concerned about differentiated suppliers or not. So that's the other thing that came up in the conversation that it'd be fun to figure out how to integrate into this. Yeah, that's a good point. The other company to mention is because I put it on here, I just kind of, I just wrote it poorly. It was Uber. And I put Uber in kind of the bottom left, which is that they had a sort of externalized network effect. And what I meant by that is the network effect is a two-sided network between drivers and riders, right? And in a generic circumstance that's external to Uber. And one way they could solve this is by internalizing more of those should be like having their own fleet, for example. And I just meant that as an example of the theory. That's not what Uber should do. I'm not saying Uber should have their own fleet. Actually, to the extent Uber will succeed, it's because they internalize that network effect in which I've written about multiple articles where having the users on the app, drawing in the drivers and having that all self-contained within Uber and leveraging that in a way that it makes it unrealistic and undesirable for drivers to go on other platforms, for example. And then also all the data that they're accumulating on where drivers are needed and what's the best route, all those sorts of things. And that data is all internal and proprietary to Uber. So it's actually moving more towards being like the degree they can internalize those network effects through data and things like that is the way to success for them. And the other thing that's exciting about this sort of articulation of Uber, which I just that was a very poor articulation. But what's the thing I've been constantly, constantly from day one, super duper critical of Uber for? It's this attempt to build their own self-driving car fleet. And it's been more of a like, this is a distraction and a waste of money and resources and alienating all your potential partners like Google, for example, when actually your benefit is the network. And this actually puts the framework around what I was trying to say. If you're in the lower right corner, sort of inherently, it's a waste of resources to both try to move up the differentiated supplier axes and also sort of move left on the sort of like the network effect axes. You got to choose a direction and go in that direction. And this is a great example. Their value such that they have, and if they are to ever realize it, is by being that dominant layer that owns the network effect of ride sharing, that has all the data of ride sharing, and then having suppliers underneath them that are providing the fleet and the cars. And right now it's totally commoditized, but maybe in the future it's a Google or self-driving cars or whatever it might be, but they have to own that top layer. And even messing around that bottom layer is going in the wrong direction. Yeah. I also like Uber because it speaks quite a bit to that point that we were talking about with the strength of the network effect as well, which is part of the reason that I think they're vulnerable. The nature of their network effect in some senses makes them almost a little bit like 
Apple, it's their network effect isn't super strong or it isn't as strong as some of the other players on the map. And I agree with you about internalizing it and getting things like data as a mechanism to differentiate because that is an exclusive way to differentiate. But the things like if you compare the nature of the two-sided platform that they've built, it's not like Microsoft where when the software gets built, it's only on Windows and therefore more users come on, so on. Like the nature of the apps, both on the driver and the writer side is that the users and the suppliers can both multi-tenant. They can both switch quite easily between Lyft or some other ride-sharing network. It means that the network effect isn't quite so strong. And also, as they get more suppliers on the network, it doesn't create this dramatic increase, the likes of which you see with software, for example, but it's almost asymptotic. It's like, okay, you have enough suppliers on that your wait time is four minutes and then it gets to three minutes and two minutes and one minute. And yeah, those are improvements in the experience, but it's not a linear improvement. It starts to drop off in the amount of improvement that you get from having more suppliers. It's not just the internalized versus externalized, but I'd also argue that the strength of their network effect isn't as strong as something like Microsoft. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great point. And the point is, to the degree that they depend on pure commodities as their suppliers, the better and stronger their network effect better be because, you know, that's the trade-off. Anyhow, we broke the golden rule, which is we started talking about Uber again. So, so I think we should end it there. And I know this was, this is our second conversation about it, and we are evolving probably as well. I thought your point about the strength of the network effect relative to the strength of your suppliers was such a great one. It should be in addition to this, which fortunately I can add to because I write a blog and not books. So Yeah, I know. But we just need to get you three-dimensional screens so we can have a third axis. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Yeah, our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent as they do every week. Again, go to WordPress.com slash Exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash Exponent. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye.